0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Five. A Nightmare and a Cataclysm One. And now swiftly followed that hideous experience— which has left its indelible mark of fear on the soul of Marinus Bicknell Willett, and has added a decade to the visible age of one whose youth was even then far behind. Dr. Willett had conferred at length with Mr. Ward, and had come to an agreement with him on several points which both felt the alienists would ridicule. There was, they conceded, a terrible movement alive in the world, whose direct connection with a necromancy even older than the Salem witchcraft could not be doubted, that at least two living men, and one other of whom they dared not think, were in absolute possession of minds or personalities which had functioned as early as 1690, or before, was likewise unassailably proved, even in the face of all known natural laws. What these horrible creatures, and Charles Ward as well, were doing or trying to do, seemed fairly clear, from their letters and from every bit of light both old and new— Which had filtered in upon the case. They were robbing the tombs of all the ages, including those of the world's wisest and greatest men, in the hope of recovering from the bygone ashes some vestige of the consciousness and lore which had once animated and informed them. A hideous traffic was going on among these nightmare ghouls, whereby illustrious bones were bartered with the calm calculativeness of schoolboys swapping books, and from what was extorted from this century dust there was anticipated a power and a wisdom beyond anything which the cosmos had ever seen concentrated in one man or group. They had found unholy ways to keep their brains alive, either in the same body or different bodies, and had evidently achieved a way of tapping the consciousness of the dead whom they gathered together. There had, it seems, in some truth in chimerical old Borellus, when he wrote of preparing from even the most antique remains certain essential salts from which the shade of a long-dead living thing might be raised up. There was a formula for evoking such a shade, and another for putting it down, and it had now been so perfected that it could be taught successfully. One must be careful about avocations, for the markers of old graves are not always accurate." Willett, and Mr. Ward, shivered as they passed from conclusion to conclusion. Things, presences, or voices of some sort, could be drawn down from unknown places as well as from the grave, and in this process also one must be careful. Joseph Corwin had indubitably evoked many forbidden things, and as for Charles, what might one think of him? What forces— outside the spheres, had reached him from Joseph Kirwin's day and turned his mind on forgotten things. He had been led to find certain directions, and he had used them. He had talked with the man of horror in Prague, and stayed long with the creature in the mountains of Transylvania. And he must have found the grave of Joseph Kirwin at last. That newspaper item, and what his mother had heard in the night, were too significant to overlook. Then he had summoned something, and it must have come— that mighty voice aloft on Good Friday, and those different tones in the locked attic laboratory. What were they like with their depth and hollowness? Was there not here some awful foreshadowing of the dreaded stranger, Dr. Allen, with his spectral bass? Yes, that was what Mr. Ward had felt with vague horror in his single talk with the men, if men it were, over the telephone. What hellish consciousness or voice, what morbid shade or presence— had come to answer Charles Ward's secret rites behind that locked door. Those voices heard in argument, must have it read for three months. Good God! Was not that just before the vampirism broke out? The rifling of Ezra Whedon's ancient grave, and the cries later at Portuxet, whose mind had planned the vengeance and rediscovered the shunned seat of elder blasphemies, and then the bungalow and the bearded stranger, and the gossip and the fear— the final madness of Charles neither father nor doctor could attempt to explain, but they did feel sure that the mind of Joseph Cohen had come to earth again, and was following its ancient morbidities. Was demoniac possession in truth a possibility? Alan had something to do with it, and the detectives must find out more about one whose existence menaced the young man's life. In the meantime, since the existence of some vast crypt beneath the bungalow seemed virtually beyond dispute— some effort must be made to find it, Willet and Mr. Ward, conscious of the sceptical attitude of the alienists, resolved during their final conference to undertake a joint secret exploration of unparalleled thoroughness and agreed to meet at the bungalow on the following morning with valises and with certain tools and accessories suited to architectural search and underground exploration. the morning of April sixth dawned clear, and both explorers were at the bungalow by ten o'clock. Mr. Ward had the key, and an entry and cursory survey were made. From the disordered condition of Dr. Allen's room, it was obvious that the detectives had been there before, and the later searchers hoped that they had found some clue which might prove of value. Of course, the main business lay in the cellar, so thither they descended without much delay, again making the circuit which each had vainly made before— in the presence of the mad young owner. For a time, everything seemed baffling, each inch of the earthen floor and stone walls having so solid and innocuous an aspect that the thought of a yawning aperture was scarcely to be entertained. Willet reflected that since the original cellar was dug without knowledge of any catacombs beneath, the beginning of the passage would represent the strictly modern delving of young Ward and his associates where they had probed for the ancient vaults whose rumour could have reached them by no wholesome means. The doctor tried to put himself in Charles's place to see how a delver would be likely to start, but could not gain much inspiration from this method. Then he decided on elimination as a policy, and went carefully over the whole subterranean surface, both vertical and horizontal, trying to account for every inch separately. He was soon substantially narrowed down and at last had nothing left but the small platform before the wash tubs, which he had tried once before in vain. Now, experimenting in every possible way, and exerting a double strength, he finally found that the top did indeed turn, and slide horizontally on a corner pivot. Beneath it lay a trim concrete surface with an iron manhole, to which Mr. Ward at once rushed with excited zeal. The cover was not hard to lift— and the father had quite removed it when Willet noticed the queerness of his aspect. He was swaying and nodding dizzily, and in the gust of noxious air which swept up from the black pit beneath, the doctor soon recognized ample cause. In a moment, Dr. Willet had his fainting companion on the floor above, and was reviving him with cold water. Mr. Ward responded feebly, but it could be seen that the mephitic blast from the crypt had in some way gravely sickened him, wishing to take no chances, Willet hastened out to Broad Street for a taxicab, and had soon dispatched the sufferer home, despite his weak-voiced protests. After which he produced an electric torch, covered his nostrils with a band of sterile gauze, and descended once more to peer into the new-found depths. The foul air had now slightly abated, and Willet was able to send a beam of light down the stygian hole. For about ten feet, he saw, it was a sheer cylindrical drop with concrete walls and an iron ladder, after which the hole appeared to strike a flight of old stone steps, which must originally have emerged to earth somewhat southwest of the present building. 2. Willet freely admits— for a moment the memory of the old Cohen legends kept him from climbing down alone into that malodorous gulf. He could not help thinking of what Luke Fenner had reported on that last monstrous night. Then duty asserted itself, and he made the plunge, carrying a great valise for the removal of whatever papers might prove of supreme importance. Slowly, as befitted one of his years, he descended the ladder and reached the slimy steps below— This was ancient masonry, his torch told him, and upon the dripping walls he saw the unwholesome moss of centuries. Down, down ran the steps, not spirally, but in three abrupt turns and with such narrowness that two men could have passed only with difficulty. He had counted about thirty, when a sound reached him very faintly, and after that he did not feel disposed to count any more. It was a godless sound, one of those low-keyed, insidious outrages of nature, which are not meant to be. To call it a dull wail, a doom-dragged whine, or a hopeless howl of chorused anguish and stricken flesh without mind, would be to miss its most quintessential loathsomeness and soul-sickening overtones. Was it for this that Ward had seemed to listen on that day he was removed? It was the most shocking thing that Willett had ever heard, and it continued from no determinate point— As the doctor reached the bottom of the steps and cast his torchlight around on lofty corridor walls, surmounted by cyclopean vaulting and pierced by numberless black archways. The hall in which he stood was perhaps fourteen feet high to the middle of the vaulting, and ten or twelve feet broad. Its pavement was of large chipped flagstones, and its walls and roof were of dressed masonry. Its length he could not imagine, for it stretched ahead indefinitely into the blackness. Of the archways, some had doors of the old six-panelled colonial type, whilst others had none. Overcoming the dread induced by the smell and the howling, Willet began to explore these archways one by one, finding beyond them rooms with groined stone ceilings, each of medium size and apparently of bizarre uses. Most of them had fireplaces, the upper courses of whose chimneys would have formed an interesting study in engineering. Never before or since had he seen such instruments or suggestions of instruments, as he loomed up on every hand through the burying dust and cobwebs of a century and a half, in many cases evidently shattered as if by the ancient raiders. For many of the chambers seemed wholly untrodden by modern feet, and must have represented the earliest and most obsolete phases of Joseph Cohen's experimentation. Finally, there came a room of obvious modernity, or at least of recent occupancy. There were oil heaters, bookshelves and tables, chairs and cabinets, and a desk piled high with papers of varying antiquity and contemporaneousness. Candlesticks and oil lamps stood about in several places, and finding a match-safe handy, Willet lighted such as were ready for use. In the fuller gleam, it appeared that this apartment was nothing less than the latest study or library of Charles Ward, of the books the doctor had seen many before, and a good part of the furniture had plainly come from the Prospect Street mansion. Here and there was a piece well known to Willett, and the sense of familiarity became so great that he half forgot the noisomeness and the wailing, both of which were plainer here than he had been at the foot of the steps. His first duty, as planned long ahead, was to find and seize any papers which might seem of vital importance, especially those portentous documents found by Charles so long ago behind the picture in only court. As he searched, he perceived how stupendous a task the final unraveling would be, for file on file was stuffed with papers in curious hands and bearing curious designs, so that months or even years might be needed for a thorough deciphering and editing. Once he found large packets of letters with Prague and Rakus postmarks, and in writing clearly recognisable as Orne's and Hutchinson's, all of which he took with him as part of the bundle to be removed in his valise. At last, in a locked mahogany cabinet once gracing the ward home, Willett found the batch of old Kirwan papers, recognising them from the reluctant glimpse Charles had granted him so many years ago. The youth had evidently kept them together very much as they had been when first he found them, since all the titles recalled by the workmen were present, except the papers addressed to Orne and Hutchinson, and the cipher with its key. Willett placed the entire lot in his valise, and continued his examination of the files. Since young Ward's immediate condition was the greatest matter at stake, the closest searching was done among the most obviously recent matter, and in this abundance of contemporary manuscript— one very baffling oddity was noted. The oddity was the slight amount in Charles's normal writing, which indeed included nothing more recent than two months before. On the other hand, there were literally reams of symbols and formulae—historical notes and philosophical comment—in a crabbed penmanship absolutely identical with the ancient script of Joseph Cohen, though of undeniably modern dating. Plainly, a part of the latter-day programme had been a sedulous imitation of the old wizard's writing, which Charles seemed to have carried to a marvellous state of perfection. Of any third hand which might have been Alan's, there was not a trace. If he had indeed come to be the leader, he must have forced young Ward to act as his amanuensis. In this new material, one mystic formula, or rather pair of formulae, recurred so often that Willet had it by heart— before he'd half-finished his quest. It consisted of two parallel columns, the left-hand one surmounted by the archaic symbol called Dragon's Head, and used in almanacs to indicate the ascending node, and the right-hand one headed by a corresponding sign of Dragon's Tail, or Descending Node. The appearance of the whole was something like this, and almost unconsciously, the doctor realised that the second half was no more than the first written syllabically backward, with the exception of the final monosyllables, and of the odd name Yog sothoth which he had come to recognize under various spellings from other things he had seen in connection with this horrible matter. The formulae were as follows, exactly so, as Willet is abundantly able to testify, and the first one struck an odd note of uncomfortable latent memory in his brain, which he recognized later when reviewing the events of that horrible Good Friday of the previous year he legeb fi throdog ya, throd So haunting were these formulae, and so frequently did he come upon them that before the doctor knew it, he was repeating them under his breath. Eventually, however, he felt he had secured all the papers he could digest to advantage for the present tense resolved to examine no more till he could bring the sceptical alienists en masse for an ampler and more systematic raid. He had still to find the hidden laboratory, so, leaving his valise in the lighted room, he emerged again into the black, noisome corridor, whose vaulting echoed ceaselessly with that dull and hideous whine. The next few rooms he tried were all abandoned, or filled only with crumbling boxes and ominous-looking leaden coffins. But impressed him deeply with the magnitude of Joseph Cohen's original operations. He thought of the slaves and seamen who had disappeared, of the graves which had been violated in every part of the world, and of what that final raiding party must have seen, and then he decided it was better not to think any more. Once a great stone staircase mounted at his right, and he deduced that this must have reached to one of the Cohen outbuildings— perhaps the famous stone edifice with the high slit-like windows, provided the steps he had descended had led from the steep-roofed farmhouse. Suddenly, the walls seemed to fall away ahead, and the stench and the wailing grew stronger. Willet saw that he had come upon a vast open space, so great that his torchlight would not carry across it, and as he advanced he encountered occasional stout pillars supporting the arches of the roof. After a time, he reached a circle of pillars grouped like the monoliths of Stonehenge, with a large carved altar on a base of three steps in the centre, and so curious were the carvings on that altar that he approached to study them with his electric light. But when he saw what they were, he shrank away shuddering, and did not stop to investigate the dark stains which discoloured the upper surface and had spread down the sides in occasional thin lines. Instead, he found the distant wall and traced it as it swept round in a gigantic circle perforated by occasional black doorways and indented by a myriad of shallow cells with iron gratings and wrist and ankle bonds on chains fastened to the stone of the concave rear masonry. These cells were empty, but still the horrible odour and the dismal moaning continued, more insistent now than ever— and seemingly varied at times by a sort of slippery thumping. Three. From that frightful smell and that uncanny noise, Willett's attention could no longer be diverted. Both were plainer and more hideous in the great pillared hall than anywhere else, and carried a vague impression of being far below, even in this dark netherworld of subterranean mystery. Before trying any of the black archways for steps leading further down, the doctor cast his beam of light about the stone-flagged floor. It was very loosely paved, and at irregular intervals there would occur a slab curiously pierced by small holes in no definite arrangement, while at one point there lay a very long ladder carelessly flung down. To this ladder, singularly enough, appeared to cling a particularly large amount of the frightful odour which encompassed everything— As he walked slowly about, it suddenly occurred to Willett that both the noise and the odour seemed strongest directly above the oddly pierced slabs, as if they might be crude trapdoors leading down to some still deeper region of horror. Kneeling by one, he worked at it with his hands, and found that with extreme difficulty he could budge it. At his touch, the moaning beneath ascended to a louder key, and only with vast trepidation— did he persevere in the lifting of the heavy stone. A stench unnameable now rose up from below, and the doctor's head reeled dizzily as he laid back the slab and turned his torch upon the exposed square yard of gaping blackness. If he had expected a flight of steps to some wide gulf of ultimate abomination, Willet was destined to be disappointed, for amidst that fetter and cracked whining he discerned only the brick-faced top of a cylindrical well, perhaps a yard and a half in diameter, and devoid of any ladder or other means of descent. As the light shone down, the wailing changed suddenly to a series of horrible yelps, in conjunction with which there came again that sound of blind, futile scrambling and slippery thumping. The explorer trembled, unwilling even to imagine what noxious thing might be lurking in that abyss. But in a moment mustered up the courage to peer over the rough-hewn brink, lying at full length and holding the torch downward at arm's length to see what might lie below. For a second he could distinguish nothing but the slimy, moss-grown brick walls sinking illimitably into that half-tangible miasma of murk and foulness and anguished frenzy, and then he saw that something dark was Leaping clumsily and frantically up and down at the bottom of the narrow shaft, which must have been from twenty to twenty five feet below the stone floor where he lay. The torch shook in his hand, but he looked again to see what manner of living creature might be immured there in the darkness of that unnatural well, left starving by young Ward through all the long months since the doctors had taken him away and clearly only one of a vast number prisoned in the kindred wells, whose pierced stone cover so thickly studded in the floor of the great vaulted cavern. Whatever the things were, they could not lie down in their cramped spaces, but must have crouched and whined and waited and feebly leaped all those hideous weeks, since their master had abandoned them unheeded. But Marinus Bicknell Willet was sorry that he looked again— A surgeon and veteran of the dissecting room though he was, he has not been the same since. It is hard to explain just how a single sight of a tangible object with measurable dimensions could so shake and change a man, and we may only say that there is about certain outlines and entities a power of symbolism and suggestion which acts frightfully on a sensitive thinker's perspective and whispers terrible hints of obscure cosmic relationships and unnameable realities— behind the protective illusions of common vision. In that second look, Willett saw such an outline or entity, for during the next few instants he was undoubtedly as stark mad as any inmate of Dr. Waite's private hospital. He dropped the electric torch from a hand drained of muscular power or nervous coordination, nor heeded the sound of crunching teeth which told of its fate at the bottom of the pit. He screamed and screamed and screamed— in a voice whose falsetto panic no acquaintance of his would ever have recognized, and though he could not rise to his feet, he crawled and rolled desperately away over the damp pavement where dozens of Tartarian wells poured forth their exhausted whining and yelping to answer his own insane cries. He tore his hands on the rough loose stones, and many times bruised his head against the frequent pillars, but still he kept on. Then at last— he slowly came to himself in the utter blackness and stench, and stopped his ears against the droning wail into which the burst of yelping had subsided. He was drenched with perspiration and without means of producing a light, stricken and unnerved in the abysmal blackness and horror, and crushed with a memory he never could efface. Beneath him, dozens of those things still lived, and from one of the shafts the cover was removed. He knew that what he had seen could never climb up the slippery walls, yet shuddered at the thought that some obscure foothold might exist. What the thing was, he would never tell. It was like some of the carvings on the hellish altar, but it was alive. Nature had never made it in this form, for it was too palpably unfinished. The deficiencies were of the most surprising sort, and the abnormalities of proportion could not be described." Willett consents only to say that this type of thing must have represented entities which Ward called up from imperfect salts, and which he kept for servile or ritualistic purposes. If it had not had a certain significance, its image would not have been carved on that damnable stone. It was not the worst thing depicted on that stone, but it never opened the other pits. At the time, the first connected idea in his mind was an idle paragraph— from some of the old Kerwin data he had digested long before—a phrase used by Simon or Jebediah Orne in that portentous confiscated letter to the bygone sorcerer. Certainly, there was nothing but your liveliest awfulness, in that which H. raised up from what he could gather only a part of. Then, horribly supplementing rather than displacing this image, there came a recollection of those ancient lingering rumors anent the burned, twisted thing found in the fields a week after the Kirwan raid. Charles Ward had once told the doctor what old Slocum said of that object, that it was neither thoroughly human nor wholly allied to any animal which Portuxet folk had ever seen or read about. These words hummed in the doctor's mind as he rocked to and fro, squatting on the nitrous stone floor. He tried to drive them out, and repeated the Lord's prayer to himself— eventually trailing off into a mnemonic hodgepodge like the modernistic wasteland of Mr. T.S. Eliot, and finally reverting to the oft-repeated dual formula he had lately found in Ward's underground library, Yai Ng Ngah and so on, till the final underlined Zithro. It seemed to soothe him, and he staggered to his feet after a time, lamenting bitterly his fright-lost torch, and looking wildly about for any gleam of light in the clutching inkiness of the chilly air. Think he would not, but he strained his eyes in every direction for some faint glint or reflection of the bright illumination he had left in the library. After a while, he thought he detected a suspicion of a glow infinitely far away, and toward this he crawled in agonized caution, on hands and knees amidst the stench and howling, always feeling ahead lest he collide with the numerous great pillars or stumble into the abominable pit he had uncovered. Once his shaking fingers touched something which he knew must be the steps leading to the hellish altar, and from this spot he recoiled in loathing. At another time he encountered the pierced slab he had removed, and here his caution became almost pitiful. But he did not come upon the dread aperture after all, nor did anything issue from that aperture to detain him. What had been down there made no sound nor stir. Evidently, its crunching of the fallen electric torch had not been good for it. Each time Willet's fingers felt a perforated slab, he trembled. His passage over it would sometimes increase the groaning below, but generally it would produce no effect at all, since he moved very noiselessly. Several times during his progress— the glow ahead diminished perceptibly, and he realized that the various candles and lamps he had left must be expiring one by one. The thought of being lost in utter darkness, without matches, amidst this underground world of nightmare labyrinths, impelled him to rise to his feet and run, which he could safely do now that he had passed the open pit, for he knew that once the light failed, his only hope of rescue and survival would line whatever relief party Mr. Ward might send, after missing him for a sufficient period. Presently, however, he emerged from the open space into the narrower corridor, and definitely located the glow as coming from a door on his right. In a moment, he had reached it, and was standing once more in young Ward's secret library, trembling with relief, and watching the sputterings of that last lamp which had brought him to safety. In another moment, he was hastily filling the burned-out lamps with an oil supply he had previously noticed, and when the room was bright again, he looked about to see if he might find a lantern for further exploration. For racked though he was with horror, his sense of grim purpose was still uppermost, and he was firmly determined to leave no stone unturned in his search for the hideous facts behind Charles Ward's bizarre madness." Failing to find a lantern, he chose the smallest of the lamps to carry, also filling his pockets with candles and matches, and taking with him a gallon can of oil, which he proposed to keep for reserve use in whatever hidden laboratory he might uncover beyond the terrible open space with its unclean altar and nameless covered wells. To traverse that space again would require his utmost fortitude, but he knew it must be done. Fortunately, Neither the frightful altar nor the open shaft was near the vast cell-indented wall which bounded the cavern area, and whose black, mysterious archways would form the next goals of a logical search. So Willet went back to that great pillared hall of stench and anguished howling, turning down his lamp to avoid any distant glimpse of the hellish altar or of the uncovered pit with the pierced stone slab beside it. Most of the black doorways led merely to small chambers, some vacant and some evidently used as storerooms, and in several of the latter he saw some very curious accumulations of various objects. One was packed with rotting and dust-draped bales of spare clothing, and the explorer thrilled when he saw that it was unmistakably the clothing of a century and a half before. In another room he found numerous odds and ends of modern clothing— as if gradual provisions were being made to equip a large body of men. But what he disliked most of all were the huge copper vats which occasionally appeared, these and the sinister incrustations upon them. He liked them even less than the weirdly figured leaden bowls, whose rims retained such obnoxious deposits, and around which clung repellent odours perceptible above even the general noisomeness of the crypt— When he had completed about half the entire circuit of the wall, he found another corridor, like that from which he had come, and out of which many doors opened. This he proceeded to investigate, and after entering three rooms of medium size and of no significant contents, he came at last to a large, oblong apartment, whose business-like tanks and tables, furnaces and modern instruments, occasional books and endless shelves of jars and bottles, proclaimed it indeed the long-sought laboratory of Charles Ward, and no doubt of old Joseph Kirwan before him. After lighting the three lamps which he found filled and ready, Dr. Willett examined the place and all its appurtenances with the keenest interest, noting from the relative quantities of various reagents on the shelves that young Ward's dominant concern must have been with some branch of organic chemistry. On the whole, little could be learned from the scientific ensemble, which included a gruesome-looking dissecting table, so that the room was really rather a disappointment. Among the books was a tattered old copy of Barellus in black letter, and it was weirdly interesting to note that Ward had underlined the same passage whose marking had so perturbed good Mr. Merritt at Cohen's farmhouse more than a century and a half before. That older copy, of course, must have perished along with the rest of Cohen's occult library in the final raid— Three archways opened off the laboratory, and these the doctor proceeded to sample in turn. From his cursory survey, he saw that two led merely to small storerooms, but these he canvassed with care, remarking the piles of coffins in various stages of damage and shuddering violently at two or three of the few coffin plates he could decipher. There was much clothing also stored in these rooms and several new and tightly nailed boxes which he did not stop to investigate. Most interesting of all, perhaps, were some odd bits which he judged to be fragments of old Joseph Cohen's laboratory appliances. These had suffered damage at the hands of the raiders, but were still partly recognizable as the chemical paraphernalia of the Georgian period. A third archway led to a very sizable chamber, entirely lined with shelves and having in the centre a table bearing two lamps. These lamps, Willet lighted, and in their brilliant glow, studied the endless shelving which surrounded him. Some of the upper levels were wholly vacant, but most of the space was filled with small, odd-looking leaden jars of two general types, one tall and without handles like a Grecian lekythos or oil jug, and the other with a single handle and proportioned like a phalaran jug. All had metal stoppers, and were covered with peculiar-looking symbols, moulded in low relief. In a moment, the doctor noticed that these jugs were classified with great rigidity, all the Lekathoi being on one side of the room with a large wooden sign reading Custodes above them, and all the phalerons on the other, correspondingly labelled with a sign reading Materia. Each of the jars, or jugs, except some on the upper shelves that turned out to be vacant, bore a cardboard tag with a number apparently referring to a catalogue, and Willett resolved to look for the latter presently. For the moment, however, he was more interested in the nature of the array as a whole, and experimentally opened several of the Lekithoi and Falerans at random, with a view to a rough generalisation. The result was invariable. Both types of jar contained a small quantity of a single kind of substance—a fine dusty powder of very light weight, and of many shades of dull, neutral colour. To the colours which form the only point of variation, there was no apparent method of disposal, and no distinction between what occurred in the lekathoi and what occurred in the Phalarins. A bluish-grey powder might be by the side of a pinkish-white one, and any one in a Phalarin might have its exact counterpart in a lekathos. The most individual feature about the powders was their non-adhesiveness, Willett would pour one into his hand, and, upon returning it to its jug, would find that no residue whatever remained on his palm. The meaning of the two signs puzzled him, and he wondered why this battery of chemicals was separated so radically from those in glass jars on the shelves of the laboratory proper. Custodes, materia—that was the Latin for guards and materials, respectively—and then there came a flash of memory, as to where he had seen that word guards before in connection with this dreadful mystery. It was, of course, in the recent letter to Dr. Allen, purporting to be from old Edward Hutchinson, and the phrase had read, There was no need to keep the guards in shape and eatig off their heads, and it made much to be found in case of trouble, as you too well know. What did this signify? But Wait! Was there not still another reference to guards in this matter, which he had failed wholly to recall when reading the Hutchinson letter? Back in the old non-secretive days, Ward had told him of the Eliezer Smith diary, recording the spying of Smith and Whedon on the Cohen farm, and in that dreadful chronicle there had been a mention of conversations overheard before the old wizard betook himself wholly beneath the earth. There had been, Smith and Whedon insisted, "'Terrible colloquies wherein figured Kerwin, certain captives of his, and the guards of those captives. Those guards, according to Hutchinson or his avatar, had eaten their heads off, so that now Dr. Allen did not keep them in shape. And if not in shape, how save as the salts to which it appears this wizard band was engaged in reducing as many human bodies or skeletons as they could? So that was what these Lekithoi contained.' the monstrous fruit of unhallowed rites and deeds, presumably won or cowed to such submission as to help, when called up by some hellish incantation, in the defence of their blasphemous master, or the questioning of those who were not so willing? Willet shuddered at the thought of what he had been pouring in and out of his hands, and for a moment felt an impulse to flee in panic from that cavern of hideous shelves, with their silent and perhaps watching sentinels, Then he thought of the materia in the myriad phalarin jugs on the other side of the room. Salts, too. And if not the salts of gods, then the salts of what? God! Could it be possible that here lay the mortal relics of half the titan thinkers of all the ages, snatched by supreme ghouls from crypts where the world thought them safe, and subject to the beck and call of madmen who sought to drain their knowledge for some still wilder end whose ultimate effect would concern, as poor Charles had hinted in his frantic note, all civilization, all natural law, perhaps even the fate of the solar system and the universe? And Marinus Bicknell Willet had sifted their dust through his hands. Then he noticed a small door at the farther end of the room, and calmed himself enough to approach it and examined the crude sign chiselled above. It was only a symbol, but it filled him with vague spiritual dread, for a morbid, dreaming friend of his had once drawn it on paper, and told him a few of the things it means in the dark abyss of sleep. It was the sign of Koth, the dreamer's sea fixed above the archway of a certain black tower, standing alone in twilight." and Willet did not like what his friend Randolph Carter had said of its powers. But a moment later he forgot the sign as he recognized a new acrid odor in the stench-filled air. This was a chemical rather than animal smell, and came clearly from the room beyond the door, and it was, unmistakably, the same odor which had saturated Charles Ward's clothing on the day the doctors had taken him away so it was here that the youth had been interrupted by the final summons. He was wiser than old Joseph Kirwan, for he had not resisted. Willet, boldly determined to penetrate every wonder and nightmare this nether realm might contain, seized the small lamp and crossed the threshold. A wave of nameless fright rolled out to meet him, but he yielded to no whim and deferred to no intuition. There was nothing alive here to harm him— and he would not be stayed in his piercing of the eldritch cloud which engulfed his patient. The room beyond the door was of medium size, and had no furniture, save a table, a single chair, and two groups of curious machines with clamps and wheels, which Willet recognized after a moment as medieval instruments of torture. On one side of the door stood a rack of savage whips, above which were some shelves, bearing empty rows of shallow pedestal cups of lead, shaped like Grecian kylochies. On the other side was the table, with a powerful argand lamp, a pad and pencil, and two of the stoppered lecithoi from the shelves outside, set down at irregular places, as if temporarily or in haste. Willet lighted the lamp and looked carefully at the pad, to see what notes young Ward might have been jotting down when interrupted— but found nothing more intelligible than the following disjointed fragments in that crabbed Cohen chirography, which shed no light on the case as a whole. B. did not, escaped into walls and found place below. Saw old V. say your Sabbath and learnt your way. Raised Yogsathoth thrice, and was your next day delivered. F. sought to wipe out all, knowing how to raise those from outside. As the strong argand blaze lit up the entire chamber, the doctor saw that the wall opposite the door, between the two groups of torturing appliances in the corners, was covered with pegs from which hung a set of shapeless-looking robes of a rather dismal yellowish white. But far more interesting were the two vacant walls, both of which were thickly covered with mystic symbols and formulae roughly chiselled in the smooth-dressed stone— The damp floor also bore marks of carving, and with but little difficulty Willett deciphered a huge pentagram in the centre, with a plain circle about three feet wide, halfway between this and each corner. In one of these four circles, near where a yellowish robe had been flung carelessly down, there stood a shallow kylix of the sort found on the shelves above the whip-rack, and just outside the periphery was one of the phalarin jugs from the shelves in the other room, its tag-numbered, 118. This was unstoppered, and proved upon inspection to be empty, but the explorer saw with a shiver that the Kylix was not. Within its shallow area, and saved from scattering only by the absence of wind in this sequestered cavern, lay a small amount of a dry, dull greenish efflorescent powder which must have belonged in the jug, and Willett almost reeled at the implications that came sweeping over him— as he correlated little by little the several elements and antecedents of the scene—the whips and the instruments of torture, the dust or salts from the jug of materia, the tulecithoi from the custody shelf, the robes, the formulae on the walls, the notes on the pad, the hints from letters and legends, and the thousand glimpses, doubts, and suppositions which had come to torment the friends and parents of Charles Ward. All these engulfed the doctor in a tidal wave of horror as he looked at that dry, greenish powder outspread in the pedestalled, leaden kylix on the floor. With an effort, however, Willet pulled himself together and began studying the formulae chiselled on the walls. From the stained and encrusted letters it was obvious that they were carved in Joseph Cohen's time, and their text was such as to be vaguely familiar to one who had read much Cohen material— or delved extensively into the history of magic. One the doctor clearly recognized as what Mrs. Ward heard her son chanting on that ominous Good Friday a year before, and what an authority had told him was a very terrible invocation addressed to secret gods outside the normal spheres. It was not spelled here exactly as Mrs. Ward had set it down from memory, nor yet as the authority had shewn it to him in the forbidden pages of Eliphas Levi— but its identity was unmistakable, and such words as Sabbath, Metroton, Almusin, and Zariatnamic sent a shudder of fright through the searcher, who had seen and felt so much of cosmic abomination just around the corner. This was on the left-hand wall as one entered the room. The right-hand wall was no less thickly inscribed, and Willett felt a start of recognition as he came upon the pair of formulae so frequently occurring in the recent notes in the library. They were, roughly speaking, the same, with the ancient symbols of dragon's head and dragon's tail heading them as in Ward's scribblings. But the spelling differed quite widely from that of the modern versions, as if old Kirwin had had a different way of recording sound, or as if later study had evolved more powerful and perfected variants of the invocations in question— the doctor tried to reconcile the chiselled version with the one which still ran persistently in his head and found it hard to do where the script he had memorized began yai nga thoth this epigraph started out as ai engenga yogasathatha which to his mind would seriously interfere with the syllabification of the second word ground as the later text was into his consciousness the discrepancy disturbed him and he found himself chanting the first of the formulae aloud, in an effort to square the sound he conceived with the letters he found carved. Weird and menacing in that abyss of antique blasphemy rang his voice, its accents keyed to a droning sing-song, either through the spell of the past and the unknown, or through the hellish example of that dull, godless wail from the pits, whose inhuman cadences rose and fell rhythmically, in the distance, through the stench and the darkness, yai, yog yogsathoth, he legeb, fi thradog, ya. But what was this cold wind which had sprung into life at the very outset of the chant? The lamps were sputtering woefully, and the gloom grew so dense that the letters on the wall nearly faded from sight. There was smoke too. And an acrid odor, which quite drowned out the stench from the faraway wells, an odor like that he had smelt before, yet infinitely stronger and more pungent. He turned from the inscriptions to face the room with its bizarre contents, and saw that the kylix on the floor, in which the ominous efflorescent powder had lain, was giving forth a cloud of thick, greenish-black vapor of surprising volume and opacity. That powder. Great God, it had come from the shelf of materia. What was it doing now, and what had started it? The formula he had been chanting. The first of the pair. Dragon's head, sending note. Blessed Saviour, could it be? The doctor reeled, and through his head raced wildly disjointed scraps from all he had seen, heard, and read of the frightful case of Joseph Kerwin and Charles Dexter Ward. I said to you again— Do not call up any that you cannot put down. Have your words for laying at all times ready, and stop not to be sure when there is any doubt of whom you have. Three talks with what was therein enumed. Mercy of heaven, what is that shape behind the parting smoke? 5. Marinus Bicknell Willett has no hope that any part of his tale will be believed except by certain sympathetic friends, hence, he has made no attempt to tell it beyond his most intimate circle. Only a few outsiders have ever heard it repeated, and of these, the majority laugh and remark that the doctor surely is getting old. He has been advised to take a long vacation and to shun future cases dealing with mental disturbance but Mr. Ward knows that the veteran physician speaks only a horrible truth. Did not he himself see the noisome aperture in the bungalow cellar? Did not Willett send him home overcome and ill at eleven o'clock, that portentous morning? Did he not telephone the doctor in vain that evening, and again the next day, and had he not driven to the bungalow itself on that following noon, finding his friend unconscious but unharmed on one of the beds upstairs?' Willet had been breathing stertorously, and opened his eyes slowly when Mr. Ward gave him some brandy fetched from the car. Then he shuddered, and screamed, crying out, "'That beard!
1: Those eyes! God, who are you?'
0: A very strange thing to say to a trim, blue-eyed, clean-shaven gentleman whom he had known from the latter's boyhood. In the bright noon sunlight, the bungalow was unchanged since the previous morning. Willet's clothing bore no disarrangement— beyond certain smudges and worn places at the knees, and only a faint acrid odour reminded Mr. Ward of what he had smelt on his son that day he was taken to the hospital. The doctor's flashlight was missing, but his valise was safely there, as empty as when he had brought it. Before indulging in any explanations, and obviously with great moral effort, Willett staggered dizzily down to the cellar, and tried the fateful platform before the tubs. It was unyielding. Crossing to where he had left his yet unused tool-satchel the day before, he obtained a chisel and began to pry up the stubborn planks one by one. Underneath, the smooth concrete was still visible, but of any opening or perforation there was no longer a trace. Nothing yawned this time to sicken the mystified father, who had followed the doctor downstairs. Only the smooth concrete underneath the planks—no noisome well, no world of subterranean horrors— no secret library, no Kirwan papers, no nightmare pits of stench and howling, no laboratory, or shelves, or chiselled formulae, no— Dr. Willet turned pale, and clutched at the younger man. "'Yesterday?' he asked softly. "'Did you see it here, and smell it?' And when Mr. Ward, himself transfixed with dread and wonder, found strength to nod an affirmative, the physician gave a sound half a sigh and half a gasp, and nodded in turn. "'Then I will tell you,' he said. So, for an hour, in the sunniest room they could find upstairs, the physician whispered his frightful tale to the wandering father. There was nothing to relate beyond the looming up of that form when the greenish-black vapour from the Kylix parted, and Willet was too tired to ask himself what had really occurred. There were futile, bewildered head-shakings from both men, and once— Mr. Ward ventured a hushed suggestion. Do you suppose it would be of any use to dig? The doctor was silent, for it seemed hardly fitting for any human brain to answer when powers of unknown spheres had so vitally encroached on this side of the great abyss. Again Mr. Ward asked, but where did it go? It brought you here, you know, and it sealed up the hole somehow. And will it again let silence answer for him? But after all— this was not the final phase of the matter. Reaching for his handkerchief before rising to leave, Dr. Willet's fingers closed upon a piece of paper in his pocket, which had not been there before, and which was companioned by the candles and matches he had seized in the vanished vault. It was a common sheet, torn obviously from the cheap pad in that fabulous room of horror somewhere underground, and the writing upon it was that of an ordinary lead pencil, doubtless the one which had lain beside the pad it was folded very carelessly, and beyond the faint acrid scent of the cryptic chamber bore no print or mark of any world but this. But in the text itself, it did indeed reek with wonder, for here was no script of any wholesome age, but the laboured strokes of medieval darkness, scarcely legible to the layman who now strained over it, yet having combinations of symbols which seemed vaguely familiar. The briefly scrawled message was this— and its mystery lent purpose to the shaken pair, who forthwith walked steadily out to the ward car, and gave orders to be driven first to a quiet dining-place, and then to the John Hay Library on the hill. At the library it was easy to find good manuals of paleography, and over these the two men puzzled till the lights of evening shone out from the great chandelier. In the end, they found what was needed. The letters were indeed no fantastic invention, but the normal script of a very dark period. They were the pointed Saxon minuscules of the 8th or ninth century A.D., and brought with them memories of an uncouth time, when under a fresh Christian veneer ancient faiths and ancient rites stirred stealthily, and the pale moon of Britain looked sometimes on strange deeds in the Roman ruins of Carleon and Hexham, and by the towers along Hadrian's crumbling wall— the words were in such Latin as a barbarous age might remember. Corvinus necandus est cadaver aqua forti dissolvendum necaliquid retinendum, taset potes, which may roughly be translated, Kerwin must be killed, the body must be dissolved in aqua fortis, nor must anything be retained, keep silence as best you are able. Willet and Mr. Ward were mute and baffled. They had met the unknown, and found that they lacked emotions to respond to it, as they vaguely believed they ought. With Willett especially, the capacity for receiving fresh impressions of awe was well-nigh exhausted, and both men sat still and helpless, till the closing of the library forced them to leave. Then they drove listlessly to the ward mansion in Prospect Street, and talked to no purpose into the night. The doctor rested toward morning, but did not go home." and he was still there Sunday noon, when a telephone message came from the detectives who had been assigned to look up Dr. Allen. Mr. Ward, who was pacing nervously about in a dressing gown, answered the call in person, and told the men to come up early the next day, when he heard their report was almost ready. Both Willet and he were glad that this phase of the matter was taking form, for whatever the origin of the strange, minuscule message, it seemed certain that the Kirwan, who must be destroyed— could be no other than the bearded and spectacled stranger. Charles had feared this man, and had said in the frantic note that he must be killed and dissolved in acid. Alan, moreover, had been receiving letters from the strange wizards in Europe under the name of Kerwin, and palpably regarded himself as an avatar of the bygone necromancer. And now, from a fresh and unknown source, had come a message saying that Kerwin must be killed and dissolved in acid. The linkage was too unmistakable to be factitious, and besides, was not Alan planning to murder young Ward upon the advice of the creature called Hutchinson? Of course, the letter they had seen had never reached the bearded stranger, but from its text they could see that Alan had already formed plans for dealing with the youth if he grew too squeamish. Without doubt, Alan must be apprehended, and even if the most drastic directions were not carried out, he must be placed where he could inflict no harm upon Charles Ward. That afternoon, hoping against hope to extract some gleam of information anent the inmost mysteries from the only available one capable of giving it, the father and the doctor went down the bay and called on young Charles at the hospital. Simply and gravely, Willet told him all he had found, and noticed how pale he turned, as each description made certain the truth of the discovery. The physician employed as much dramatic effect as he could, and watched for a wincing on Charles's part, when he approached the matter of the covered pits and the nameless hybrids within. But Ward did not wince. Willet paused, and his voice grew indignant as he spoke of how the things were starving. He taxed the youth with shocking inhumanity, and shivered when only a sardonic laugh came in reply— but Charles, having dropped as useless his pretense that the crypt did not exist, seemed to see some ghastly jest in this affair, and chuckled hoarsely at something which amused him. Then he whispered, in accents doubly terrible because of the cracked voice he used,
1: "'Damn them. they do eat, but they don't need to. That's the rare part. A month, you say, without food? Lotsa, sir, you be modest. You know—' That was the joke on poor old Whipple with his virtuous bluster. Kill everything off, would he? Why, oh, damn, he was half deaf with the noise from outside, and never saw or heard out from the wells. He never dreamed they were there at all. Devil take ye! those cursed things have been howling down there ever since Curwen was done for hundred and fifty-seven years gone.
0: But no more than this could Willet get from the youth. Horrified, yet almost convinced against his will, he went on with his tale in the hope that some incident might startle his auditor out of the mad composure he maintained. Looking at the youth's face, the doctor could not but feel a kind of terror at the changes which recent months had wrought. Truly, the boy had drawn down nameless horrors from the skies. When the room with the formulae and the greenish dust was mentioned, Charles shewed his first sign of animation. A quizzical look overspread his face. As he heard what Willet had read on the pad, and he ventured the mild statement that those notes were old ones of no possible significance to anyone not deeply initiated in the history of magic. But he added,
1: "Had you but known the words to bring up that which I had out in the cup, you had not been here to tell me this. 'Twas number one one eight, and I conceive you would have shook had you looked it up in my list. Into the room, 'twas never raised by me." But I meant to have it up that day you came to invite me hither.
0: Then Willet told of the formula he had spoken and of the greenish-black smoke which had arisen, and as he did so, he saw true fear dawn for the first time on Charles Ward's face.
1: It came, and you be here alive?
0: As Ward croaked the words, his voice seemed almost to burst free of its trammels and sink to cavernous abysses of uncanny resonance. Willett... Gifted with a flash of inspiration, believed he saw the situation, and wove into his reply a caution from a letter he remembered. Number 118, you say? But don't forget that stones are all changed now in nine grounds out of ten. You're never sure till you question. And then, without warning, he drew forth the minuscule message and flashed it before the patient's eyes. He could have wished no stronger result, for Charles Ward fainted forthwith. All this conversation, of course, had been conducted with the greatest secrecy, lest the resident alienists accuse the father and the physician of encouraging a madman in his delusions. Unaided, too, Dr. Willet and Mr. Ward picked up the stricken youth and placed him on the couch. In reviving, the patient mumbled many times of some word which he must get to warn and Hutchinson at once. So, when his consciousness seemed fully back— the doctor told him that of those strange creatures at least one was his bitter enemy, and had given Dr. Allen advice for his assassination. This revelation produced no visible effect, and before it was made the visitors could see that their host had already the look of a hunted man. After that he would converse no more, so Willet and the father departed presently, leaving behind a caution against the bearded Allen— to which the youth only replied that this individual was very safely taken care of, and could do no one any harm, even if he wished. This was said with an almost evil chuckle, very painful to hear. They did not worry about any communications Charles might indict to that monstrous pair in Europe, since they knew that the hospital authorities seized all outgoing mail for censorship, and would pass no wild or outre looking missive. There is, however— a curious sequel to the matter of Orne and Hutchinson, if such indeed the exiled wizards were. Moved by some vague presentiment amidst the horrors of that period, Willett arranged with an international press-cutting bureau for accounts of notable current crimes and accidents in Prague and in eastern Transylvania, and after six months believed that he had found two very significant things amongst the multifarious items he received and had translated— one was the total wrecking of a house by night in the oldest quarter of Prague, and the disappearance of the evil old man called Joseph Nadek, who had dwelt in it alone ever since anyone could remember. The other was a titan explosion in the Transylvanian mountains east of Rakus, and the utter extirpation with all its inmates of the ill-regarded Castle Ferenczi, whose master was so badly spoken of by peasants and soldiery alike that he would shortly have been summoned to Bucharest for serious questioning, had not this incident cut off a career already so long as to antedate all common memory? Willett maintains that the hand which wrote those minuscules was able to wield stronger weapons as well, and that while Kerwin was left to him to dispose of, the writer felt able to find and deal with Orne and Hutchinson itself. Of what their fate may have been, the doctor strives sedulously not to think— 6. The following morning, Dr. Willett hastened to the ward home, to be present when the detectives arrived. Alan's destruction or imprisonment, or Kerwin's if one might regard the tacit claim to reincarnation as valid, he felt must be accomplished at any cost, and he communicated this conviction to Mr. Ward, as they sat waiting for the men to come. They were downstairs this time, for the upper parts of the house were beginning to be shunned because of a peculiar nauseousness which hung indefinitely about—a nauseousness which the older servants connected with some curse left by the vanished Kerwin portrait. At nine o'clock the three detectives presented themselves and immediately delivered all that they had to say. They had not, regrettably enough, located the Brava Tony Gomez as they had wished nor had they found the least trace of Dr. Allen's source or present whereabouts, but they had managed to unearth a considerable number of local impressions and facts concerning the reticent stranger. Allen had struck Portuxet people as a vaguely unnatural being, and there was a universal belief that his thick Van Dyke beard was either dyed or false, a belief conclusively upheld by the finding of such a false beard, together with a pair of dark glasses, in his room at the fateful bungalow. His voice, Mr. Ward could well testify from his one telephone conversation, had a depth and hollowness that could not be forgotten, and his glance seemed malign, even through his smoked and horn-rimmed glasses. One shopkeeper, in the course of negotiations, had seen a specimen of his handwriting, and declared it was very queer and crabbed, this being confirmed by penciled notes of no clear meaning found in his room, and identified by the merchant. In connection with the vampirism rumours of the preceding summer, a majority of the gossips believed that Allen, rather than Ward, was the actual vampire. Statements were also obtained from the officials who had visited the bungalow after the unpleasant incident of the motor-truck robbery. They had felt less of the sinister in Dr. Allen— But had recognised him as the dominant figure in the queer, shadowy cottage. The place had been too dark for them to observe him clearly, but they would know him again if they saw him. His beard had looked odd, and they thought he had some slight scar above his dark, spectacled right eye. As for the detective's search of Alan's room, it yielded nothing definite, save the beard and glasses, and several pencilled notes in a crabbed writing, which Willett at once saw was identical with that shared by the old Kirwan manuscripts and by the voluminous recent notes of young Ward found in the vanished catacombs of horror. Dr. Willett and Mr. Ward caught something of a profound, subtle, and insidious cosmic fear from this data, as it was gradually unfolded, and almost trembled in following up the vague, mad thought which had simultaneously reached their minds— The false beard and glasses, the crabbed co and penmanship, the old portrait and its tiny scar, and the altered youth in the hospital with such a scar. That deep, hollow voice on the telephone. Was it not of this that Mr. Ward was reminded when his son barked forth those pitiable tones to which he now claimed to be reduced? Who had ever seen Charles and Alan together? Yes, the officials had once, but who later on? Was it not when Alan left that Charles suddenly lost his growing fright and began to live wholly at the bungalow? Cohen, Alan, Ward, and what blasphemous and abominable fusion had two ages and two persons become involved? That damnable resemblance of the picture to Charles, had it not used to stare and stare and follow the boy around the room with its eyes? Why, too, did both Alan and Charles copy Joseph Cohen's handwriting, even when alone and off guard? and then the frightful work of those people, the lost crypt of horrors that had aged the doctor overnight, the starved monsters in the noisome pits, the awful formula which had yielded such nameless results, the message in minuscules found in Willett's pocket, the papers and the letters and all the talk of graves and salts and discoveries, whither did everything lead? In the end, Mr. Ward did the most sensible thing— Stealing himself against any realisation of why he did it, he gave the detectives an article to be shewn to such portuxet shopkeepers as had seen the portentous Dr. Allen. That article was a photograph of his luckless son, on which he now carefully drew in ink the pair of heavy glasses and the black pointed beard which the men had brought from Allen's room. For two hours he waited with the doctor in the oppressive house, where fear and miasma were slowly gathering— as the empty panel in the upstairs library leered and leered and leered. Then the men returned. Yes, the altered photograph was a very passable likeness of Dr. Allen. Mr. Ward turned pale, and Willett wiped a suddenly dampened brow with his handkerchief. Allen, Ward, Kerwin, it was becoming too hideous for coherent thought. What had the boy called out of the void, and what had it done to him? What, really— it happened from first to last. Who was this Alan who sought to kill Charles as too squeamish, and why had his destined victim said in the postscript to that frantic letter that he must be so completely obliterated in acid? Why, too, had the minuscule message, of whose origin no one dared think, said that Kerwin must be likewise obliterated? What was the change, and when had the final stage occurred? That day when his frantic note was received, He had been nervous all the morning. Then there was an alteration. He had slipped out unseen and swaggered boldly in past the men hired to guard him. That was the time when he was out. But no, had he not cried out in terror as he entered his study, this very room? What had he found there? Oh wait, what had found him? That simulacrum which brushed boldly in without having been seen to go, was that an alien shadow and a horror forcing itself upon a trembling figure which had never gone out at all? Had not the butler spoken of queer noises? it rang for the man and asked him some low-toned questions. It had, surely enough, been a bad business. There had been noises, a cry, a gasp, a choking, and a sort of clattering or creaking or thumping or all of these. And Mr. Charles, was not the same when he stalked out without a word. The butler shivered as he spoke and sniffed at the heavy air that blew down from some open window upstairs. Terror had settled definitely upon the house, and only the business-like detectives failed to imbibe a full measure of it. Even they were restless, for this case had held vague elements in the background which pleased them not at all. Dr. Willet was thinking deeply and rapidly, and his thoughts were terrible ones. Now and then he would almost break into muttering as he ran over in his head a new, appalling and increasingly conclusive chain of nightmare happenings. Then Mr. Ward made a sign that the conference was over and everyone save him and the doctor left the room. It was noon now, but shadows as of coming night seemed to engulf the phantom haunted mansion. Willet began talking very seriously to his host and urged that he leave a great deal of the future investigation to him there would be he predicted certain obnoxious elements which a friend could bear better than a relative as family physician he must have a free hand and the first thing he required was a period alone and undisturbed in the abandoned library upstairs where the ancient overmantel had gathered about itself an aura of noisome horror more intense than when joseph cohen's features themselves glanced slyly down from the painted panel. Mr. Ward, dazed by the flood of grotesque morbidities and unthinkably maddening suggestions that poured in upon him from every side, could only acquiesce, and half an hour later the doctor was locked in the shunned room with the panelling from Olney Court. The father, listening outside, heard fumbling sounds of moving and rummaging as the moments passed, and finally— a wrench and a creak, as if a tight cupboard door were being opened. Then there was a muffled cry, a kind of snorting choke, and a hasty slamming of whatever had been opened. Almost at once the key rattled, and Willet appeared in the hall, haggard and ghastly, and demanding wood for the real fireplace on the south wall of the room. The furnace was not enough, he said, and the electric log had little practical use. Longing, yet not daring to ask questions, Mr. Ward gave the requisite orders, and a man brought some stout pine logs, shuddering as he entered the tainted air of the library, to place them in the grate. Willet, meanwhile, had gone up to the dismantled laboratory, and brought down a few odds and ends, not included in the moving of the July before. They were in a covered basket, and Mr. Ward never saw what they were. Then the doctor locked himself in the library once more, And by the clouds of smoke which rolled down past the windows from the chimney, it was known that he had lighted the fire. Later, after a great rustling of newspapers, that odd wrench and creaking were heard again, followed by a thumping, which none of the eavesdroppers liked. Thereafter, two suppressed cries of Willet's were heard, and hard upon these came a swishing rustle of indefinable hatefulness. Finally, The smoke that the wind beat down from the chimney grew very dark and acrid, and everyone wished that the weather had spared them this choking and venomous inundation of peculiar fumes. Mr. Ward's head reeled, and the servants all clustered together in a knot to watch the horrible black smoke swoop down. After an age of waiting, the vapors seemed to lighten, and half-formless sounds of scraping sweeping and other minor operations were heard behind the bolted door, and at last, after the slamming of some cupboard within, Willet made his appearance, sad, pale and haggard, and bearing the cloth-draped basket he had taken from the upstairs laboratory. He had left the window open, and into that once accursed room was pouring a wealth of pure, wholesome air to mix with a queer new smell of disinfectants— the ancient overmantle still lingered, but it seemed robbed of malignity now, and rose as calm and stately in its white panelling as if it had never borne the picture of Joseph Kirwan. Night was coming on, yet this time its shadows held no latent fright, but only a gentle melancholy. Of what he had done, the doctor would never speak. To Mr. Ward he said, "'I can answer no questions, but I will say—' that there are different kinds of magic. I have made a great purgation, and those in this house will sleep the better for it. 7. That Dr. Willett's purgation had been an ordeal almost as nerve-wracking in its way as his hideous wandering in the vanished crypt is shown by the fact that the elderly physician gave out completely— as soon as he reached home that evening. For three days he rested constantly in his room, though servants later muttered something about having heard him after midnight on Wednesday, and the outer door softly opened and closed with phenomenal softness. Servants' imaginations, fortunately, are limited, else comment might have been excited by an item in Thursday's evening bulletin, which ran as follows. North End Ghouls active again after a lull of ten months since the dastardly vandalism in the Weeden lot at the north burial ground, a nocturnal prowler was glimpsed early this morning in the same cemetery by Robert Hart, the night watchman. Happening to glance for a moment from his shelter at about 2 a.m., Hart observed the glow of a lantern or pocket torch not too far to the northwest, and upon opening the door detected the figure of a man with a trowel very plainly silhouetted against a nearby electric light. At once starting in pursuit, he saw the figure dart hurriedly toward the main entrance, gaining the street and losing himself among the shadows before approach or capture was possible. Like the first of the ghouls active during the past year, this intruder had done no real damage before detection. A vacant part of the ward lot showed signs of a little superficial digging, but nothing even nearly the size of a grave had been attempted, and no previous grave had been disturbed. Hart, who cannot describe the prowler except as a small man probably having a full beard, inclines to the view that all three of the digging incidents have a common source. But police from the second station think otherwise on account of the savage nature of the second incident, where an ancient coffin was removed and its headstone violently shattered. The first of the incidents, in which it is thought an attempt to bury something was frustrated, occurred a year ago last March and has been attributed to bootleggers seeking a cache. It is possible, says Sergeant Riley, that this third affair is of similar nature. Officers at the second station are taking especial pains to capture the gang of miscreants responsible for these repeated outrages." All day Thursday, Dr. Willett rested as if recuperating from something past or nerving himself for something to come. In the evening he wrote a note to Mr. Ward, which was delivered the next morning and which caused the half-dazed parent to ponder long and deeply. Mr. Ward had not been able to go down to business since the shock of Monday with its baffling reports and its sinister purgation, but he found something calming about the doctor's letter in spite of the despair it seemed to promise and the fresh mysteries it seemed to evoke. 10 Barnes Street, Providence, Rhode Island, April 12, 1928 Dear Theodore, I feel that I must say a word to you before doing what I am going to do tomorrow. It will conclude the terrible business we have been going through, for I feel that no spade is ever likely to reach that monstrous place we know of, but I am afraid it won't set your mind at rest unless I expressly assure you how very conclusive it is. You have known me ever since you were a small boy, so I think you will not distrust me when I that some matters are best left undecided and unexplored. It is better that you attempt no further speculation as to Charles's case, and almost imperative that you tell his mother nothing more than she already suspects. When I call on you tomorrow, Charles will have escaped. That is all which need remain in anyone's mind. He was mad, and he escaped. You can tell his mother gently and gradually about the mad part when you stop sending the typed notes in his name, I'd advise you to join her in Atlantic City, and take a rest yourself. God knows you need one after this shock, as I do myself. I'm going south for a while to calm down and brace up. So don't ask me any questions when I call. It may be that something will go wrong, but I'll tell you if it does. I don't think it will. There will be nothing more to worry about, for Charles will be very, very safe. He is now safer than you dream." You need hold no fears about Alan, and who or what he is. He forms as much a part of the past as Joseph Cohen's picture, and when I ring your doorbell you may feel certain that there is no such person, and what wrote that minuscule message will never trouble you or yours. But you must steel yourself to melancholy, and prepare your wife to do the same. I must tell you frankly that Charles's escape will not mean his restoration to you, He has been afflicted with a peculiar disease, as you must realise from the subtle physical as well as mental changes in him, and you must not hope to see him again. Have only this consolation, that he was never a fiend, or even truly a madman, but only an eager, studious, and curious boy, whose love of mystery and of the past was his undoing. He stumbled on things no mortal ought ever to know, and reached back through the years as no one ever should reach, "'and something came out of those years to engulf him. "'And now comes the matter in which I must ask you to trust me most of all. "'For there will be, indeed, no uncertainty about Charles's fate. "'In about a year, say, you can, if you wish, devise a suitable account of the end, "'for the boy will be no more. "'You can put up a stone in your lot at the north burial-ground, "'exactly ten feet west of your father's, and facing the same way, "'and that will mark the true resting-place of your son.' nor need you fear that it will mark any abnormality or changeling. The ashes in that grave will be those of your own unaltered bone and sinew—of the real Charles Dexter Ward, whose mind you watched from infancy—the real Charles with the olive mark on his hip and without the black witch mark on his chest or the pit on his forehead—the Charles who never did actual evil, and who will have paid with his life for his squeamishness. That is all. Charles will have escaped and a year from now you can put up his stone. Do not question me tomorrow, and believe that the honour of your ancient family remains untainted now, as it has been at all times in the past. With profoundest sympathy and exhortations to fortitude, calmness, and resignation, I am ever sincerely your friend. Marinus, B. Willett. So, on the morning of Friday, April 13th, 1928, Marinus Bicknell Willet visited the room of Charles Dexter Ward at Dr. Waite's private hospital on Conanicut Island. The youth, though making no attempt to evade his caller, was in a sullen mood, and seemed disinclined to open the conversation which Willett obviously desired. The doctor's discovery of the crypt and his monstrous experience therein had of course created a new source of embarrassment, so that both hesitated perceptibly after the interchange of a few strained formalities. Then a new element of constraint crept in, as Ward seemed to read behind the doctor's mask-like face a terrible purpose which had never been there before. The patient quailed, conscious that since the last visit there had been a change whereby the solicitor's family physician had given place to the ruthless and implacable Avenger. Ward actually turned pale, and the doctor was the first to speak. More, he said, has been found out, and I must warn you fairly that a reckoning is due.
1: Digging again, and coming upon more poor starving pets,
0: was the ironic reply. It was evident that the youth meant to shew bravado to the last. No, Willet slowly rejoined. This time I did not have to dig. We have had men looking up Dr. Allen, and they found the false beard and spectacles in the bungalow. "'Excellent,' commented the disquieted host in an effort to be wittily insulting.
1: "'And I trust they proved more becoming than the beard and glasses you now have on.' "'They would become you very well,'
0: came the even and studied response, as indeed they seemed to have done. As Willet said this, it almost seemed as though a cloud passed over the sun.' though there was no change in the shadows on the floor. Then Ward ventured,
1: "'And is this what asks so hotly for a reckoning? Suppose a man does find it now and then useful to be twofold?' "'No,'
0: said Willett, gravely. "'Again, you are wrong. It is no business of mine if any man seeks duality, provided he has any right to exist at all, and provided he does not destroy what called him out of space.' Ward now started violently.
1: "'Well, sir—' What have you found? What do you want with me?
0: The doctor let a little time elapse before replying, as if choosing his words for an effective answer. I have found, he finally intoned, something in a cupboard, behind an ancient overmantel, where a picture once was, and I have burned it and buried the ashes where the grave of Charles Dexter Ward ought to be. The madman choked and sprang from the chair in which he had been sitting.
1: "Damn ye! Who did you tell— "'Who believe it was he after these two full months with me alive? "'What do you mean to do?'
0: "'Willet, though a small man, actually took on a kind of judicial majesty "'as he calmed the patient with a gesture. "'I have told no one. "'This is no common case. "'It is a madness out of time and a horror from beyond the spheres "'which no police or lawyers or courts or alienists could ever fathom or grapple with. "'Thank God some chances left inside me the spark of imagination.' that I might not go astray in thinking out this thing. You cannot deceive me, Joseph Cohen, for I know that your accursed magic is true. I know how you wove the spell that brooded outside the years and fastened on your double and descendant. I know how you drew him into the past and got him to raise you up from your detestable grave. I know how he kept you hidden in his laboratory while you studied modern things and roved abroad as a vampire by night, and how you later shewed yourself in beard and glasses, that no one might wonder at your godless likeness to him. I know what you resolved to do when he balked at your monstrous rifling of the world's tombs, and at what you planned afterward, and I know how you did it. You left off your beard and glasses and fooled the guards around the house. They thought it was he who went in, and they thought it was he who came out, when you had strangled and hidden him. But you hadn't reckoned on the different contents of two minds— "'You were a fool, Cohen, to fancy that a mere visual identity would be enough. Why didn't you think of the speech and the voice and the handwriting? It hasn't worked, you see, after all. You know better than I who or what wrote that message in minuscules, but I will warn you, it was not written in vain. There are abominations and blasphemies which must be stamped out, and I believe that the writer of those words will attend to Orn and Hutchinson.' One of those creatures wrote you once, do not call up any that you cannot put down. You were undone once before, perhaps in that very way, and it may be that your own evil magic will undo you all again. Kirwan, a man can't temper with nature beyond certain limits, and every horror you have woven will rise up to wipe you out. But here the doctor was cut short by a convulsive cry from the creature before him. Hopelessly at bay, Weaponless and knowing that any show of physical violence would bring a score of attendants to the doctor's rescue, Joseph Cohen had recourse to his one ancient ally and began a series of cabalistic motions with his forefingers at his deep, hollow voice, now unconcealed by feigned hoarseness, bellowed out the opening words of a terrible formula. Peradonai Elohim, Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Sabbath, Metroton. But Willet was too quick for him. Even as the dogs in the yard outside began to howl, and even as a chill wind sprang suddenly up from the bay, the doctor commenced the solemn and measured intonation of that which he had meant all along to recite. An eye for an eye, magic for magic, let the outcome shew how well the lesson of the abyss had been learned. So in a clear voice, Marinus Bicknell Willet, began the second of that pair of formulae whose first had raised the writer of those minuscules, the cryptic invocation whose heading was the dragon's tail, sign of the descending node. At the very first word from Willet's mouth, the previously commenced formula of the patient stopped short, unable to speak the monster made wild motions with his arms until they too were arrested. When the awful name of Sothoth was uttered, the hideous change began. It was not merely a dissolution, but rather a transformation or recapitulation, and Willet shut his eyes lest he faint before the rest of the incantation could be pronounced. But he did not faint, and that man of unholy centuries and forbidden secrets never troubled the world again the madness out of time had subsided, and the case of Charles Dexter Ward was closed. Opening his eyes before staggering out of that room of horror, Dr. Willet saw that what he had kept in memory had not been kept amiss. The head, as he had predicted, had been no need for acids, for like his accursed picture a year before, Joseph Kirwin now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine, Bluish-gray dust.